0: Welcome to Talk About Poetry, where a group of working poets get to do what they would do anyway, which is to sit around and talk about poems that engage, enlighten, impress, or annoy us. Talk About Poetry is sponsored by Nine Mile Books and Nine Mile Magazine, which you can find online at ninemile.org. I'm Bob Herz, one of the editors. With me are my co-editors, Steve Casisto and Andrea Scarpino. Hello, both. Hey. Uh, hey. The agenda today is wide open. We thought to talk about one poem that we read or had read to us and that changed how we view or how we wrote poetry. I think maybe to start out with, we might just introduce ourselves. Um, As I say, I'm Bob Hurz. I'm one of the editors here. I've got a couple of books of poetry uh, out and uh, we have a lot of fun doing what we do. Um,
1: Steve? I'm Steve Kusisto, poet, memoirist, sometimes journalist. I have two books of poetry out from Copper Canyon Press, Only Bread, Only Light, and a second volume called Letters to Borges. My most recent book is a memoir from Simon & Schuster called Have Dog Will Travel, A Poet's Journey. Andrea.
2: I am Andrea Scarpino, also a poet and writer. Um, My newest Edited anthology is called Undocumented Great Lakes Poets Laureate on Social Justice. That's out last year from MSU Press.
0: You've also got two terrific books out. You might want yeah. to have both of them.
2: I have three books. Maybe only two are terrific, but three are published. <laughs> apologies, apologies. That's fine.
0: <laughs> and they are?
2: Oh, uh, Once Then is the first book uh, from Red Hen Press. The second is What the Willow Said as it Fell, also from Red Hen Press. And the third is um, Once Upon Wing Lake. Uh, and that's from a small press in Phoenix called Waddle.
0: And you had a terrific review of one of those books in Nine Mile Magazine, as I remember.
2: I believe that's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we love those books. We love, we love your work. Um, so anyway, Steve, I think you had a, a thought for a poem that you really had an extraordinary experience with at one point in your life. You wanted to talk about that a bit?
1: Yeah, I would love to talk about a poem by Emily Dickinson. Um, it's goes by the name, My Life Had Stood a Loaded Gun. It's number 764. And I first discovered this poem while uh, being <laughs> while, while having a Fulbright grant in Scandinavia in 1982. I saw by chance a sign that a noted American literature scholar David Porter would be talking about this very poem that afternoon at the University of Helsinki. And I went and found this poem. Uh, I was unaware of it before then. I thought I knew something about Emily Dickinson. Uh, this poem blew my mind. And I've been uh, you know, reflecting on it ever since. It's a really complex and intelligent poem. My life had stood, a loaded gun, in corners, till a day the owner passed, identified, and carried me away. And now we roam in sovereign woods, and now we hunt the doe. And every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply, and do I smile? Such cordial light upon the valley glow, It is as the Vesuvian face Had let its pleasure through. And when at night, our good day done, I guard my master's head, Tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow To have shared. To foe of his I'm deadly foe, None stir the second time, on whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. Though I than he may longer live, he longer must than I, for I have but the power to kill without the power to die. So that's a complicated poem. The uh, most interesting thing that strikes me straight away is that in the first four lines, her life is compared to a gun loaded in a corner but unused, right? That is to say that there is a charge or power in her life, potentially very dangerous, that has been unused. And then she says, the owner passed, continuing this analogy with a gun, the owner passed, identified. The word identified in the 19th century means to join, to become part of a larger group. The owner passed, identified, and carried me away. Who is the owner of your life? Mm -hmm. The poet is the owner of her life. So this is in no small measure about the imagination, about becoming a powerful poet. And then she says, and now we roam in sovereign woods, continuing the analogy with a hunter. Now we roam in sovereign woods. That means divine, kingly uh, woods. And now we hunt the doe. And every time I speak for him, which is the owner, the owner of the imagination, the mountain's straight reply. This imagination is powerful, like a gunshot. And do I smile such cordial light Upon the valley glow, it is as a Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through. The valley glowing, then that strange volcanic image of a kind of divine but hot light, potentially dangerous. Is that the light outside or the light inside? It's both the light inside a mind and the light outside. And when at night, our good day done, I guard my master's head, which is the life, the life now charged like a gun, the master's head, the poet's head herself, tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared, to be lying down in that space, that inner life lying down inside the poet's own head, better than a pillow. The foe of his, that empowered imagination, I'm deadly foe. None stir the second time, or on whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. Though I, the life, then he may longer live, he longer must than I, for I have but the power to kill without the power to die. The imagination is eternal. The mind, mortal. The poem, a powerful and um, completely um, unforeseeable space. Once you become empowered like that gun and go out into the world, um, there are all kinds of remarkable things that can happen. Potent, powerful, potentially dangerous, but nothing is ever the same. So uh, it's a poem about Becoming fully empowered, it's about the danger of it. Um, Once you seize your own imagination, um, there's no going back. Um, Interesting, she says, I have but the power to kill. That is to say, that life that's been fully empowered, like the gun, right? Um, I have but the power to kill without the power to die. that is to say, we don't know the time of our own respective uh, departure from this life, but we have a lot of powerful imagination in the interim. So I wanted to just sort of toss out that poem because I think often poets talk about poetry as though it's like a bouquet or, you know, it's like a Whitman chocolate sampler. And we say, oh, the imagination, oh, I see things anew and with refreshment, but the imagination is scary. <laughs> the imagination is potent and scary and powerful, and we don't know what it will produce. And once you let that out, it's the genie out of the bottle, right? She says, you know, this poetry business, this poetry business, it's uh, it's intense, and it's not what we would suppose. So what do you think about that? Andrea?
2: I love that. (laughs) Yeah. I'm on board.
1: (laughs) It's a hard poem. It's a very hard poem. It's It's written in that kind of churchly meter that she loved so much. You know, the joke is you can sing every Emily Dickinson poem to the Yellow Rose of Texas. This one works just that way. My life had stood a loaded gun in corners till a day. The owner passed, identified, carried me away. Right? Um, And so that rhythm lulls you in. uh, And you get about four or five lines into this poem and you go, what the heck is going on here? My life, like a loaded gun, had been waiting around and then, you know, the owner comes, takes me in, the The owner of my, my life, my potential life, comes and carries me away. That's a very uh, profound and potent way of thinking about the imagination. That, she says in another poem, that we play at paste, she says thinking again of poetry, that people used to make uh, fake jewels out of paste. Uh, and she compares that to the real jewels of the real poet. The real poet makes jewels, the bad poet makes pasty jewels.
0: Um, <laughs> she's, that.
1: she's saying that uh, there came a day when the owner, who is the mind itself, the actuated, individuated, powerful mind, as Carl Jung would put it, Suddenly takes her in, and carries her out into the world where nothing is ever the same again. And uh, I think that's an amazing poem.
0: That's an amazing poem. I think it's open to a lot of different kinds of readings. One might read, as an example, the I've seen some of this. The first stanza would be a much more traditional reading, saying, "You know, I'm the woman. I'm a loaded gun. I'm nothing until the man finds me." And, Takes me away. Um, but I, I like your reading much more, although I, I have to say I get confused in that reading by lines like, and now we hunt the doe, right? So the doe is a word she chose to put in here. She didn't say deer, she didn't say buck, it's the doe, it's the female deer. So the gun is hunting the female deer in the sovereign woods, which I, I guess I get in, in the reading you just laid out, the sovereign wood being the, the universe of the imagination. And every time I speak for him, in other words, every time I shoot the doe or shoot at the doe, I hear the echo from the mountains, these things that are bigger than all of us, bigger than guns, bigger than people. Um, and all the, uh, just one other thing to notice, they, all the stanzas rhyme until we get to the one, two, three, fourth stanza. And when at night a good day done, I guard my master's head, which is better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared. Suddenly the rhyme is just gone. Something has changed. I think in the poem, and then you get these really hard lines, you know. To foe of his, I'm deadly foe. We're to foe of his, I'm deadly foe. None stir the second time. That's a John Wayne line, you know. Nobody bet. Nobody gets up. Thus, nobody gets up a second time, partner. I mean, it's really quite something. Uh, and and I love, by the way, I just have to say, I love this emphatic thumb. I, what is an emphatic thumb?
1: Well, in the 19th century, you would use your thumb to seal letters oh, okay. with wax. Um, and so, you know, in a way, the emphatic thumb is, it's it's closing the deal.
0: The emphatic thumb, right, where I'm pressing. Yeah. The, what is, um, what now, is hunting the dough? Like I said, this, is, this is more than happiness is a warm gun, right? What is the what is hunting the dough?
1: So there's a line in one of... Um, Thoreau's notebooks that I love and he says he's walking in the forest and he sees a chipmunk and all he wants to do is grab it and devour it alive and he's talking about the imagination and he may have been talking about appetite but (laughs) The way he frames it, we know. He, he just wants to take everything in. And, you know, once your imagination is really uh, your own and you're fully awake, you don't see things the same way. Um, now we roam in sovereign woods, that is to say, uh, the life that has been released and going hunting with the power of the gun, which is the power of the mind, she says, you know, uh, I'm conquering everything, right? Um, this is not a romantic poem. And uh, a scary scary poem. Poem. it's, it's scary. a scary poem. And the, I, I brought up Carl Jung earlier because, you know, he says the unconscious is a scary goddamn place. And, um, you know, we talk about the imagination, but it's also the case that we should um, be fully mindful of the fact that it will also deliver you things that you weren't expecting, right? Um, The angels, it turns out, have sharp little pin-like claws made of gold, right? So um, it's a poem about the very power of, uh, of poetry, uh, to transform everything about the way you think about your life and the energies of your own creativity and uh, it it basically says it's not what you would suppose I think
0: that's, I think a that's good. To end our discussion on this point uh, and Andrea maybe we could go to your significant poem
2: absolutely it's very different um, this is a poem by Mary Oliver it's from her uh, collection Dreamwork and i'm not always a hundred percent mary oliver fan i have to be honest but this book was given to me at a really important moment in my life so i grew up in kind of a very chaotic home with a lot of health problems and so i would go every single week when i was in high school to get a pain treatment at scripps clinic and my doctor was this amazing man who talked to me all the time about poetry and dreams and just kind of um He was an adult who was very different from the other adults I knew in my life. (laughs) So I very much loved him. He was a very important figure in my life. Um, And right the day, the last treatment I went in, the last time I went in to get a treatment before I was gonna be moving across the country, he gave me this book and he read this poem to me. And um, it just was a poem that continues to to really change my life because of that. So it's the poem, The Journey um, from Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the roads full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world Determined to do the only thing you could do. Determined to save the only life you could save. So for, yeah. So for me, I think at that moment, you know, moving across the country, leaving this doctor who had been so important to me, um, it was really important to have that idea of, you can do this, right? Uh, You don't have to mend anybody else's life you can only save your own life and a lot of ways i I hadn't really thought about it until just this moment but i think it resonates with that dickinson poem of discovering your voice yeah and um just listening to your own imagination your own path kind of not listening to the chorus of people around you (laughs) who might be shouting their bad advice as as mary oliver says um but to continue To continue forging your own path and moving forward. Um, And I think the simplicity of the lines is really interesting. Um, Unlike the Dickinson poem, I think, which is much more complicated, it's very straightforward. Um, There are dashes, which I always, you know, at this point, any poem that has a dash, I think of Dickinson. So there's like three dashes in here that I think kind of recalls some of that uh, earlier language. and it's a very nature based poem, right, like Mary Oliver always returns to nature some somehow some way, so right. even though it could slip into just kind of um a self healthy poem, I think it doesn't because of that kind of emphasis of the on the natural world so it's my very favorite Mary Oliver poem. I still have the book that my doctor Roland Odin gave me so many years ago. <laughs> Yeah, I have, he wrote a little inscription inside for me. Um, And it's just, I think it, for me, I I wanted to talk about it because it does speak to the way poetry can kind of show up at an unexpected moment, Um, maybe like how you discovered your poem, Steve, and then it just sticks with you and you continue thinking about that poem for 20, 30, 40 years because it was, it arrived at such a pivotal moment.
1: Yeah, Uh, the American poet Robert Bly describes this phenomenon this way. He says, uh, he's referring to Lorca. Uh, when you read Lorca, you find a secret friend and he's always with you, like a sudden ray of light, right? That, um, I, one of the things I love about that poem is that it attacks the, um, it attacks the weakness of the superego. And you know, the superego is that part of the mind that says, what are the neighbors doing? Right. <laughs> how do I stack up against the person down the hall? You know, uh, and it, it tends to be uh, covetous, and it tends to worry over much about what other people think. And, um, you know, the real truth of the matter is that um, there was a lot of talk in the 60s about how you gotta get rid of the ego, man. You gotta get rid of the, the ego is your biggest friend. Um, in a way, you could say that the Emily Dickinson poem is about the ego. One day I got powerful, you know, the hell with all the rest of you, man. I am.
2: Yeah.
1: I, I'll look at a deer and kill it with my eyeballs, you know. Um, that's the ego, and the ego is powerful. You need the ego, um, but the super ego, not so much, right? It's like, eh, if I, like, do I have a car as nice as my neighbors? You know, um, how, many, how many academic articles have I published versus the person down the hall, right? <laughs> so, you know, the superego will kill you. And that's, the poem is so smart about that, right? Uh, when it says that, you know, d- don't pay attention to these people around you who are going to offer you their advice because the superego is always afraid. You know, it, I wouldn't go and do that that, I wouldn't do that if I were you, right? Um, you know, go to California and see what happens. I wouldn't do that. I'd stay here and work <laughs> in the insurance office, right?
0: Right. <laughs> you know what I like here? I love the transformation that takes place and it, this really is a journey. And in the opening lines, the poet identifies with or virtually is the house and has all these, you know, these kneecappers basically around her, her telling her, don't do this. You must not do that. Um, you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations. And then this line, which is just wonderful. Though their melancholy, their melancholy it was terrible because they never left the house. They
1: stayed. That's right. And, right.
0: Then, and then these beautiful lines. It was already late. Right. It was already late enough and a wild night. Wow. So wait a minute. You waited. You tried to accommodate to them. You tried to be nice. You tried to listen to the bad advice. You tried to stay in the house, right? Presumably, you were, this is a female, you know, a poem written by a female poet. Presumably, you were the good daughter or the good whatever in that. And then it was already late enough in a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. That's kind of that Disney, you know, the, the Disney thing, right, where the they're, they're escaping now, so that's it's a wild night, well, purchased. <laughs> but little by little, as you left their voice behind, right as you left their voice behind now the transformation really becomes full. <laughs> the stars begin to the stars began to burn through the sheets of the clouds. You don't really think of the stars burning through the clouds, but the stars began to burn through the sheets of the clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own, that's the parallel, Steve with your Dickinson poem right there, right? Yeah. You know, that's there's a new voice that you began to recognize as your own, right? Which you slowly recognize that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do. I couldn't save them. I couldn't save that house. I couldn't save all those people back there. I can only save me, right? It's the only thing I have control over. So it's a it's a heck of a poem. I mean, really, it's something I can see why it meant a lot to you given what you described as your as your upbringing and as your as your background in this.
2: Yeah and I think now you know it, this is another uh maybe marker of a really good poem is that you see it differently at different stages in your life but Ugh. just in this conversation I'm thinking about the wild nights of Emily Dickinson right? wild nights wild nights if I were the wild nights would be our luxury <laughs> um which I had never even thought about before but I think obviously there's just so much recalling of Dickinson um throughout this poem.
0: I also like, go ahead, Bob. No, I was going to say, it's a a wonderful parallel. I wouldn't have caught that one. I'm thinking Van Morrison, but I I get it. I
1: I also think that both the Emily Dickinson poem and the Mary Oliver poem um, tacitly say something off the page, right? Right. Ernest Hemingway always talked about how you know a good short story should be like an iceberg that you know It's the stuff you don't see that really matters and that's true in the poem, right? Uh, And in both cases The person who begins that poem writing it is not the same person who ends the poem
2: Yes, I think that's totally right. Yeah
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's a nice read. I agree with that. Yeah, there's no ornamentation in this poem. It just goes straight straight through the poem I mean, other than the um, house symbol, I guess you'd say, right, other than that, there really is no other, there's no ornamentation, no frills, there's nothing fancy, it just very plainly says this and this then this, and now you're free, congratulations. Thank you for sharing that, that's a wonderful poem, thank you. Yeah, of course. I like that. So the poem I, I wanna share with you both and with our audience, there's a poem by James Tate, uh, which I read in the 60s. Uh, it's a poem called, Why I Will Not Get Out of Bed. It was a poem in his book called The Lost Pilot, which was a Yale series of younger poets choice uh, by Stanley Kunitz back in the, in the 60s, in those dark days of the 60s. Uh, the poem uh, came to me, well, let me read the poem, and then I'll talk about the circumstance. I was a young poet, I was an undergraduate. I was just beginning to discover poetry. I was just beginning to discover 20th century poetry, which up to that point had really meant uh, Yeats, uh, Thomas Hardy, Dylan Thomas, I mean big sounding vowels, big rhythms, big sounds uh, in the poetry, you know, turning and turning in the widening gyre, or through throats for many rivers meet, right, all those incredibly loud wonderful poems, and then I suddenly come across this poem, Why I will not get out of bed? My muscles unravel, like spools of ribbon. There is not a shadow of pain. I will pose like this for the rest of the afternoon, for the remainder of all noons. The rain is making a valley of my dim features. I am in Albania, I am on the Rhine. It is autumn, I smell the rain. I see children running through Columbine. I am honey, I am several winds. My nerves dissolve, my limbs wither. I don't love you. I don't love you. This poem completely knocked me dead for a whole bunch of reasons. Given the background of everything I just said about what I'd been reading, what I understood about poetry, how I grasped poetry at the time, to come across this poem with its little triplets, very short little lines of five and six syllables in the beginning and four and five syllables at the end. With this unbelievable melody, The first two lines of the poem are, my muscles unravel like spools of ribbon. And I heard an echo of a poem I had loved before them by Thomas Hardy called Neutral Tones. The first line of which is, we stood by a pond that winter day. Now listen to this. We stood by a pond that winter day. My muscles unravel like spools of ribbon. I heard the same melody in the first two lines here. And I think that's what drew me into it to begin with and helped me discover the music in this little short poem. There is not a shadow of pain. And then the way he picks this up, pain, uh, the A sounds, unravel, shadow, pain, afternoon, uh, noon, rain, Albania, Rhine, autumn, rain, running. These, these incredible continental echoes, these vowel echoes that drive all the way through the poem. And then to these last two lines that are so stunning, I don't love you, I don't love you. You know, there was an argument for a long time on uh, James uh, Wright's uh, wonderful poem, A Blessing, as to whether the poem had earned its last line, you know, I have wasted my life. This one here, I think there's no question, the poem earned its lines. This is a guy who cannot get out of bed because that relationship has fallen apart and he wants to do anything but confront that fact. His imagination soars. we have been talking a lot in the other two poems today about how imagination leaps forward and goes somewhere. Here's Here's an imagination that runs all over the world. The rain is making a valley of my dim features. I am in Albania, I'm on the Rhine. It is autumn, I smell the rain. I see children running through Columbine. I am honey, I am several winds. And think about, the impossibility of what he's describing here. He's not gonna get out of bed, but he's in Albania. Why Albania? Albania because it rhymes with all these other A sounds that are occurring. Everything is being birthed from word to word to word. Um, Rhine, rain, honey and several winds, you can't be both. Honey is the stuff that sticks on the counter and is, moves very slowly. The wind is up here, it's blowing all over the place. hes He's got these contradictory states. And then suddenly he's back to himself because you can't live out there for a long time. My nerves dissolve, my limbs wither, and now he has to admit the truth of the situation. I don't love you. I don't love you. I find the poem extraordinary. There's a massive change in here. Um, It's um, seven stanzas and a final last line by itself. But the first three stanzas are all five and six syllables the last bunch of four and five syllables as he as he emerges into his imagination. It's a wonderfully controlled poem um, and just knocked me dead. I wanted to share it. Um,
2: well, and as you said about our two poems, I think the poet of this or the speaker of this poem also at the end is very different from the speaker in the beginning. As you say, he finally comes At the end, he's admitting, like, this is why I can't get out of bed, right? (laughs) But we have to kind of go all around the world before we can kind of come back to the the heart of the matter, the truth that's at the center of the poem. You know,
1: and that's the way we all are, right? I mean, we uh, employ our imaginations in all kinds of strategies, um, often to avoid the uh, the very literal truth. Yeah. You know. so that's familiar not only to creative writers but to anyone right that um, he's he's thinking about he has the blues, he thinks poetically how his muscles are unraveling like like spools of yarn or ribbon
0: yeah.
1: uh, you know that's a that's a dark image, the body coming apart um, you know. Leadbelly has a blues song that begins, uh, "I see my coffin coming, Lordy Lord, in my back door." You know, uh, it, it's a, it's a, you know, he's he's got the blues for sure. Uh, and then he plays with the blues and you know mixes some beauty in there, right? That he's he's sailing around the world uh, in the mind, which is seeking to find a kind of Compensatory way of thinking about the state he's in, and then suddenly the the full truth is just borne forward uh in those last two lines. It's uh, it's just a great poem.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think there is a mental shack going on here, where he's kind of scattering himself all over to be able to come back to himself. You know, and it's funny. In all three of our poems uh, today, in a way, you've got the poet leaving home to come back to himself or herself. Uh, in these in these processes, I love the way this poem births itself. You know, the sounds are birthing the lines, right? I am in Albania. Why Albania? Well, because there's those a sounds in Albania, right? I'm on the Rhine. Why Rhine? Well, Rhine, rain, right? I'm hearing that echo, right. Ryan, rain, rain. It, 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 James Tate was an incredible poet. I mean, he could just one had the sense he could just throw these things out, but of course he didn't. Um, Steve and I, uh, Andrea have a uh, one of our teachers, Jim Kreiner, shared an office with Tate at uh, Iowa, and uh, Kreiner used to tell us how Tate would work very hard on his poems to make them appear this spontaneous, but yeah. of course they weren't. You know, Yeats has got that whole thing about how you know beauty must seem unforced and natural, right? Um, and, and 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 yet it's it's worked that so. Um, yeah.
2: It's such a seemingly uh, deceptively simple poem, I think, because the language is so simple. Um, But as Steve pointed out about his chosen poem, the longer you sit with it, kind of the layers of meaning wash over you and you start to go deeper and deeper and deeper. I think it gets more complicated the longer you sit with it.
0: You know, I think that's true of any poem, maybe true of any poem that we like, but it's certainly true of any, any really good poem. I agree with that. Uh, guys, this has been a fascinating session. Thank you both. This has been what interesting poems we picked. We should do this again.
1: Um, absolutely. I vote for it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> here, here. I second the motion. <laughs>
0: uh, this is the Talk About Poetry podcast, sponsored by Nine Mile Magazine and Nine Mile Books. We hope you've, th- we hope you've enjoyed this production. Our music is by the late Bob Perry, an Emmy Award winning musician who lived and worked in Syracuse, New York. Thanks to all. Of you.